The presenting sponsors of the Elevate podcast are the Expert Institute, Hype Legal, and Smart Advocate. The Expert Institute is the place that all top trial lawyers need to go to find the best experts to work on and to help you present your case. Expert Institute streamlines that process by providing staff who will go out, do an extensive search for the right expert, line up multiple candidates with their CVs, their past testifying history, well-vetted, who have a particular interest, curiosity, and expertise in the specialization that you need for the case, and will coordinate the meetings with all of those folks so that all you have to do is tell them what you're looking for and then get on the Zoom or get on the phone and talk to the expert candidates and select the best one for your case. It's a great process. It saves me and my staff a ton of time. And most importantly, the net result is we find better experts than we would have found without their assistance. And that makes a huge difference in the bottom line for our cases. If you're interested in speaking with them, go to theexpertinstitute.com and check them out today. Our show is also sponsored by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is a full uh, practice management software system for your firm. It allows you to manage all of your cases, whether you have a complex practice with hundreds or thousands of clients and cases, or just a few cases with uh, lots of documents or anything in between. It's a robust, customizable uh, solution. It's cost-effective and it's worked great in our practice. I think I mentioned on an earlier show, my paralegal thanked me for choosing that product. And when the paralegal thanks you for something, it really means a lot because they're the ones who interface with that on a daily basis. And Hype Legal, our friends, Micah and Tyler, who were at a firm called High Impact, where they helped to build out that successful trial animation Uh, company over a long period of time, getting to know the needs, particular idiosyncrasies, needs of trial lawyers, what we need to succeed, how our practices work. And they took all of that experience and their expertise with aesthetics and graphics and digital marketing and started their own firm called Hype Legal, where they now offer that service on a niche basis to some of the top trial law firms in the country. You should check them out at hypelegal.com. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Rahul Ravipudi. I'm Ben Gideon. Ben, this is fun. We're doing two podcasts in one day, um, coming out of Trial Lawyers University here, so we get the chance to interact with a bunch of amazing people. But how are you doing? I'm great. It's great that you're live on site in uh, Vegas for the Trial Lawyer University. So can you give us a kind of a highlight film of what's going on there? Yeah. So there's almost a thousand people that have come from all across the country. And just as a little backdrop during the pandemic, one of the things Dan Ambrose did, and I think it was fantastic, is he basically corralled all of these amazing trial lawyers all across the country uh, who are so accomplished, but some of us didn't even get a chance to know each other until uh, he started doing webinars with all of these lawyers and starting to dissect cases and to train lawyers on how to be better. There's none of us not a single one of us think we're already at the peak and there's nothing else for us to learn. And so 
that knowledge was being shared because none of us were trying cases. And the information that was being shared was, I think, unprecedented. And through that, then now that we're hopefully coming out of the pandemic, he set up this live TLU conference where all of those speakers who were teaching during the webinars now have come live, about 100 of them. And uh, has we have eight uh, breakout sessions. And at any given time, you can walk into any room and just learn from some pretty amazing trial lawyers, including uh, Patricia, who's here with us now, and her, uh, her partner, Roger Dodd, and, uh, and the teachings they had. And, and I'll tell you, just uh, I was teaching in the other room in the afternoon yesterday, and I could hear uh, the laughter and the enjoyment happening in uh, Roger and Patricia's room and had a little FOMO, I'm not going to lie. This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Ravi Pudi. Patricia, thanks for joining us. Oh my gosh, thank you guys so much for having me. This is exciting. Absolutely. So give us a little bit and our listeners a little background on how you started in the practice of law or why, and then how you got to where you are right now. Yeah, sure. So I have kind of an interesting story. I graduated law school and um, as a 20, you know, two, 23 year old young person, I looked at a map and I decided I can live anywhere I want. And I chose of all places, Miami, Florida. So that's where I started my career. Um, I knew nobody. I had only ever been there for a weekend. So it really was just an impulsive thing to do. Um, and I had no job. So my first job out of law school, I found work with a solo practitioner who did 100% complex domestic relations work, Um, which frankly, I'd never even taken family law in law school. So this was a very odd uh, position for me, but it ended up being a wonderful start to my career. Um, I worked with a, a woman who was older and really wanted to start passing off Um, a lot of the trial work. So from, I would say, three weeks into my practice, we'd be walking to the courthouse and she'd hand me the file and say, you're doing this. And I probably tried 15, 20 cases in my first two years of practice. Um, And if you've ever never done family law, let me tell you, there's some of the hardest cross-examinations because you have so many issues and you have very strong personalities and strong emotions. So for me, I I cut my teeth doing family law. Um, Then I I met Roger maybe six, seven years into my practice. And I went to one of his lectures on cross-examination and it was, it revolutionized cross for me. I, I just got really into his method, spent a lot of time working with him, talking to him. And it was Roger that encouraged me to expand outside of family law. And, you know, now I consider myself a small town lawyer. I'm in Park City, Utah. Um, Roger's my law partner. And I've got, I do a mix of personal injury, criminal defense, and domestic relations. Um, and I still try all kinds of cases and bench trials, jury trials. Um, and then on top of it, I teach with Roger all around the country doing these two-day cross-examination clinics for lawyers. And I took that class, as did, I believe, almost every lawyer in my firm. And uh, we all 
learned so much. I can't even describe the experience, Ben, but I've never been so exhilarated and so exhausted um, after two days of, of learning from Roger and Patricia. But maybe you could explain to, to, all, to everybody, what is the method and why is it something that impacted you so much and something that you utilize? So the, the method is actually fairly simple to explain because there's only three rules. So rule number one is leading questions only, which obviously it means we don't want to give the witness control. We want to control the narrative through leading questions. Um, The second rule is one new fact per question, which, frankly, I think is the most important of the three rules. And for me, was really revolutionizing. And I'll I'll tell you why. But um, the third rule is you go general to specific. And that's what we call the chapter method. Um, The reason I think the one new fact per question is really important is that's how we tell stories. If you pick up a novel Every sentence is one sort of new fact added in. You don't have these run-on sentences with these run-on concepts. When you go one new fact per question, you're telling a story, you're building your narrative, and it's a lot easier for your listener to follow. Um, So I personally found that once I started to use his method, whether it was a bench trial or a jury trial, I'm seeing more heads nodding. I'm seeing more notes being taken. Um, and for me, it there's less pressure because I only have to F, put one new fact in my next question. I don't have to stress about, you know, trying to tell my entire case in four questions. Um, and, and a lot of people ask, you know, well, does that take a long time? But Rahul, as you saw in doing the clinic, it really doesn't. It's actually far more efficient. Are you able to kind of role play that a bit and give us an example of how that might work? Sure. Um, let's see. I could, I could cross examine what you're wearing. How about that, Ben? Sure. <laughs> so the, the goal of this is to make your cross visual to, to tell a story. So I'm going to, and, and, you know, obviously we didn't prepare this, but I'm just going to look at, I can see Ben on my computer screen and I'm going to, Use this method, these three rules, to describe what you're wearing. Okay, so uh, Ben, you have clothing on. Yes. You have a shirt on. I do. Your shirt has long sleeves. Correct. Two of them. Yes. Your shirt is light in color. It is. Some may even call that that color white. I would agree. And that white shirt that you're wearing looks like it's a waffle material. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, it probably is. Right. Some may call it waffle material. Sure. So do you see how I'm going general to specific? Start off very general. I, I You know, you're wearing clothes. Which is actually pretty rare for me, so that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have been a much different cross-examination if you didn't have clothes on. Can I just back? Uh, that was really helpful to understanding how that works. So, and a lot of times, I mean, it just seems so simple as you do that and explain it, but sometimes the things we do wrong are the thing, the basics. So it's sometimes really good to get back to basics, but just kind of to back up, like what is the overall goal of cross-examination? And most of the time, are you trying to impeach your witnesses? Are you trying to 
make them into your own uh, witnesses that are telling the story you want to be told? Or is it just different uh, depending on who that witness is and what their role is in, in the case? So I think most cross-examinations are a mix of sort of the, the constructive type of cross-examination where you're, you're trying to get facts that support your own story, your own narrative out of a an opposing witness's mouth. And obviously you also have impeachment, bias, interest, motive, crosses. Um, Roger and I talk about this a lot when we're preparing for trials. We tend to think that, you know, it's more important to stick with your own narrative because people don't learn in the negative in general. You know, if you say to your child uh, as you walk into the grocery store, don't ask me for ice cream, what's the first thing they, they see in their mind and the first thing they ask for? They ask you for ice cream. So the, the destructive side of cross, the impeachment, which let's be honest, it's so fun, right? Like we all enjoy that part of our cross examinations, but we're not teaching as well in, in those portions. So we probably do 60 to 70 percent constructive focusing on our narrative and we intersperse the impeachments throughout the cross which also I think has more benefit because if you put all of your impeachments together, it almost becomes nails on a chalkboard. It's harder to absorb. So intersperse them, keep the witness on their toes, but definitely spend more of your time focused on your, what facts help your case. Where do you think cross ranks in terms of the elements of a trial and what's most important for the, for the jury? Personally, I think uh, second. I think voir dire is crucial. I just do. But then I, I, I am a believer that that cross is probably the second most important. It's not just the lawyer talking, which is opening and closing. And, you know, inherently lawyers are not always liked or believed right off the bat. Um, and when you when you get the opposing witness through cross-examination to admit the facts that support, you know, your story, it's worth more. Because the jury says to themselves, well, that witness is not even, you know, a plaintiff witness. Why would they say that if it wasn't true? It gives you the, the ability and closing argument to then say, you know, exactly that. You know, these are the facts and you didn't just hear it from our witnesses. You heard it out of the opponent's mouth or the opposing expert's mouth. Part of the teaching that was uh, so interesting to me in uh, with Roger and Patricia was this whole concept of being consistent in your cross-examination by following those three rules. One fact leading only. Um, and half the time your questions don't even sound like questions. They're more like statements, but it gets the witness in a rhythm of just saying, yes, correct. You're right. Yes, 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 yes. And if you're, if you're concerned as you, as we always should be, that a witness is going to run away from you and start to inject their own narrative, it's very hard to do that when your questions are so non-argumentative and are one fact at a time. So it starts to get that that witness out of their, you know, fighting zone and into your territory of just following your lead. Yeah, the other thing it does by starting really general is a lot of times the witness has no idea where you're going. 
And so they're not thinking four questions ahead of where is this going? They, they just have to listen to each question and answer it, which is so helpful, especially with experts that are trained on how to, you know, kind of ignore what, what we're asking and just tell their own agenda over and over again. I'm assuming because you describe them as rules, your, your approach is, is that they are absolute or are there ever exceptions? So I think of when I do a cross, I typically am probably 95% leading, but occasionally I like to throw in a non-leading question where I know it allows, it, it's going to be an answer that I like, but it takes away the idea that I've programmed the the response and it makes it the witness's own words when I want that to occur. Do you ever, is there ever a role in your view for the occasional non-leading question or is it hard and fast rule? So uh, I'm glad Roger's not here because he won't like my answer. Um, I, I, I absolutely do put non-leading questions into my cross. Um, but when I do it, I plan it. Um, I, I plan it out. And, it, and it, usually it's those questions that, frankly, whichever way the witness answers, I am ready to work with it. It's going to work for me. So I don't really care which way they go. I'm prepared if they go route A, I'm, this is where I go next. If they go route B, that's where I go. And neither answer is going to hurt me. Um, I also do it a, every now and again with general questions. Like, you know, we talk about the, the general to the specific with experts, and I do this a lot with law enforcement, I do it a lot with just experts in general, I'll start off super vague with a question that's so general, like, you know, to a, to a, to a cop, your job is to protect and serve. And, and I know it sounds odd. And then I, I start to go into what does that mean to you? And that's my open ended. They're not ready to talk about it. They're not prepared. It makes them really nervous. Where am I going with it? Um, so I will do it for those two reasons. One, because I don't really care what the answer is. And I do, I agree with you. I think sometimes it sends a message to the jury that we're we're not so scripted. Like we're, we're here to have a conversation and to try to discover truth. Um, but I'm prepared either way that it goes, or I use it to, to just make a, a witness's anxiety increase. Okay. That makes me feel a little better. I haven't been screwing it up that badly over the years. <laughs> well, and there, there's no hard and fast rule. And, and this is where Roger and I disagree a little bit. It's a technique. It's a technique to fall back on because none of us are perfect, right? We all have bad days. I have days when I can barely talk, like I'm tripping over every single word. And on those days, it is so wonderful to have a method to fall back on so that I know that I can get in there and be competent and be proficient. But then you can build in those other moments and add other techniques that, that maybe do conflict with the rules a little bit, but you're doing it intentionally. You're doing it consciously. As you're um, preparing your, your case and your cross-examinations for trial, do you set up all your chapters and cross-examinations before you even start trial so everything's prepackaged and you kind of know how the whole trial's going to go? Or, or is it as you, as you move on? So obviously, before I get up to cross-examine a particular witness, yeah, I do have my chapters laid out. Um, I've got my chapters laid out. I've got them sequenced, which I think is one of the hardest things to figure out when you're preparing for a trial. But it doesn't mean that I I read them. 
or that I follow them to the letter. I use them as templates to help my anxiety go down because I know I have it right there. Um, and it, it, it helps me quiet my mind so that I can really listen to the witness. And that's where the, those spontaneous moments come in. When you hear, you know, anytime a witness doesn't say yes or no, rather than clutching up and getting upset and freaking out, those are the moments in trial that I, I personally believe um, make all the difference. So I, I, I quiet my mind by being prepared, having all my chapters, and then I can really listen and, and spontaneously loop the witness, use the witness's own words, tie it back to my narrative. And like I said, I mean, it's there's there's this old quote that success is where preparation meets opportunity. So I view preparing my chapters as the preparation portion to then give me the ability to listen and find the opportunities. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Now, one thing on the on the chapters, my understanding is that each chapter is sort of a subject area that you want to cross-examine the witness on. And uh, so those are all separate pages in your in your binder. Um, I remember you and Roger teaching that no matter what, once you organize your chapters, when you're sitting there at council table and, you know, the examination's happening, you shouldn't reorganize the chapters. Well, what's, uh, what's the rationale for that? The rationale is, is kind of twofold. Um, first of all, you've put in all the time and work to sequence it. And, you know, hopefully you had a thought process on why you were sequencing it the way that you were. So you've done all this work when you're not under the, the stress of being in the courtroom, when you're not, you know, it, your, your adrenaline isn't pumping. Um, and so that's probably your fresher mind and you should defer to that thinking. Then the second reason is if you chase the direct, oftentimes you're doing it because you're pissed off about a point that the other side scored, right? And, and and if you go right after those points, all you're doing is bolstering their points and their positions. So it, it helps you when, it, when you when you take the approach, I'm not going to resequence. It actually helps you notice that you are pissed off and say to yourself, nope, I plan this out. I'm sticking the way that I, I plan to do it. When you're thinking about sequencing, is there... A particular strategy for that? In other words, like, is there a primacy recency where you try to have a big hit at the beginning and something memorable at the end and leave the more boring stuff to the middle? Or how, how do you, how do you think through that? Yeah. So there's, there's no hard and fast rule. Um, me personally, I always try to strike early with any kind of bias, interest, or motive uh, crosses that I have. I think it's really important, especially in a jury trial. I, I view that as a filter. I always think about it as like a coffee filter. If I can establish bias, interest, or motive right up front, then the rest of the evidence that comes in is now getting filtered in the jury's mind through that lens. So that's usually how I start. Um, then I go right to my narrative and I try not, I, I really try never to do a chronological cross. So if there's a story, you know, that A, then B, then C, then D, then E happened, I don't go in that order. 
And, and I do that on purpose because I don't want the witness to know where I'm going. Um, and, and frankly, the jury can follow it. As long as you have good chapters, like chapters in a book, uh, like any good story, they there's entry points. So even if a juror doesn't understand yet how it all fits together, they're able to put it put the pieces together by the end of your cross and they, they have a feeling and an understanding. Um, then I usually disperse my impeachments throughout the cross. I always start with the, the, the impeachments that are the strongest, that you know you have a fail safe, you've got a, a deposition with you know similar words, you've got a document. Um, I start off with those impeachments and I, and I sprinkle them through the cross. Um, I do believe in primacy and recency, especially when it comes to breaks during the trial. You know, have you ever had a, a cross-examination and, and you're in the middle of it and all of a sudden someone says they have to go to the bathroom or the judge decides to take a break or it's lunchtime? Um, I, I usually make sure that when I come back from a break, and this is where I will resequence a little bit, that I pick a chapter that is strong and that I, I, I know I'm not, I'm less likely to get into a fight on. I want the, the jury after a break to feel that I'm in control. Um, but, at, but beyond that, how you sequence and resequence or how I do it, it just depends on the case. You know, I try to make sure that that there's high points because there's always going to be the boring stuff, right? There's just boring stuff in, in every case. Um, so I try to sprinkle it throughout. And then you you focus on trying to do a really efficient cross. There's, there's no real desire to keep the witness on the stand for much longer than they need to be there too, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of lawyers uh, get in trouble when they keep the, the witness on the stand too long because they feel like they're scoring points and then they, they want to like put an exclamation point on it. So then they start to go back through what they already did and, and the witness now knows it and starts to fix their prior answers. So I'm a big believer, like once you've got the point made, move on. Don't, don't reopen it. Don't give them that opportunity to water it down. How do you know when you're sort of reached the point of, of diminishing returns? It's sort of a different point, not, not where you're going back and replowing the same ground, but where there's another point you could make, but it's not your strongest point, but it's another uh, data point, another breadcrumb in the story of the case. You feel like you might want to get it in there, but you might already have enough. How do you, what's your teaching on that as to, with Cross in particular, when when do you reach that diminishing return point? So ultimately, you know, we, we only have so much time to try our cases, right? The judge, you know, lets each side say how much time they need, and then usually gives both sides less time. That's just what I've experienced. So without unlimited time, the way I view it is that the measure of importance in the, in the courtroom is how much time you spend on something. So if it's really important to your case, spend more time. Add extra detail. Really plow that ground. But on those other chapters, which, you know, that you mentioned, they're, they're a little bit more tangential, a different data point, but not crucial. 
that's when you, I would still say, you know, if it, so if it helps your case in any way, do it. Just don't spend as much time. Those are your shorter chapters, less factually robust, less detailed. You still make the point. You just don't take a long time getting there. What do you do with those witnesses? You've, I'm sure, had them uh, where, I mean, I, I do a lot of med mal cases. So occasionally you'll get this doctor that is, say, they're you know, full professor at Harvard and they've done multiple fellowships in XYZ. Uh, they they just have an opinion that you don't agree with, your experts don't agree with, but you really don't have anything on them that is going to be that's going to demonstrate the flaw of their approach. Uh, we you have a contrary view of it, but there's things you can nibble around the edges. You typically have that, or you might have something slight slightly useful on bias and motive and interest. But ultimately, that witness is not one you're going to win, and you probably know that going in. And, and you don't you don't encounter that that often because we're very good at the mixed martial arts of doing this. But occasionally, you know, and and where I find I get myself into trouble is you're arrogant enough that you think you can do it anyway, so you go in there and try, but at the end of it, you're back where you started, which is you're not going to win that battle. So how, how do you how do you approach that? Yeah. And obviously we all have those witnesses, right? Um, so I, I kind of approach it in a few ways. Um, first of all, I tell myself going in, do not get into the weeds of that particular medicine, that particular specialty, because they win those fights every time where, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not, you know, an accountant if it's, you know, a financial case. I I try to remind myself, don't pick the fights in the weeds. I lose those 100% of the time. So as you said, you nibble around the edges and you nibble with high level concepts, broad concepts, not the detailed facts. Uh, but more importantly, I always try to think about, because usually you have your own expert, right? In the same specialty. I look at what my expert has given me and I go through it with a fine tooth comb and I say, okay, these, let me pull out, get rid of the conclusions and look at the detailed facts in the analysis. And I work on getting the opposing expert to admit those benign facts. That way I know where they differ and I know that I can maybe get 60 or 70% of those facts admitted from the expert, from the opposing expert. And I, I use them in that way. I use them almost in a, in a bolstering manner for my expert without ever asking them to comment on my expert. Um, then the other suggestion I have for people is with those witnesses, because don't they always think they're smarter than us? I mean, that's just like they, they put off this like air of like, especially with for me, I don't know about you guys, but they I, I always feel like they look at me like you little girl, you don't know what you're doing. Um, they try to keep me high level with their vocabulary, with their jargon. I, I think it's so important to ask, I call them equating questions. So they, they want to keep a word. They don't want to get off their vocabulary. Make them admit that whatever word they're using 
equals something else, means something else that that's a more a, a word in our wheelhouse, a, a more human word, a layperson's word. Um, but keep them, try to get, keep them in your vocabulary. Don't let them stay in the, you know, the condescending, um, you know, sort of level space of, you know, they're so smart. They use these big words. And that takes time because they don't want to use our words. They're, they're trained to fight against our words. So sometimes, you know, like for instance, you know, don't doctors love to use the word Nick? Like, oh, well, it was just a Nick, you know, think about breaking that down. Well, what's a Nick, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Expert, a Nick involves a cut using an instrument, a medical instrument, and it often involves a cut with a medical instrument on a part of the body that wasn't supposed to be cut. So you're, you're taking, you know, they always want to use this word, use a series of questions to equate it into a, a more human concept that helps you. So Patricia, what part of your practice is focused on, or percentage of your practice is focused on teaching versus um, litigating cases? Um, you know, it went up during COVID because none of us were getting, well, most of us weren't getting in the courtroom and, and um I actually, not that I want to say I enjoyed COVID, but I, I enjoyed that we all, a lot of us just want to get better. And we used that time to get better. I, I really, I love trial lawyers. I, I love people that, you know, identify as, as a trial lawyer. We, we just want to get better. So I definitely taught more during that period of time. Um, now I would say, I mean, it's probably two to four days a month I'm teaching um, and then I also have a part of my practice where I consult, where people will hire me um, not to do their case for them, but to help them get ready for a depot, help them draft chapters, help them get ready for a trial, almost just kind of give them that boost they need, teach them the method. Um, and so I, I would say, you know, that's maybe I spend 10 hours a week on that. So you're really good at teaching. Um, but the question I have is, do you enjoy it and why? I love teaching. Um, frankly, teaching makes me a better trial lawyer. I, I'll be teaching somebody and they'll ask me a question that I've never thought of. And then now I get to have all these new ideas based on one question that someone asked me. Um, or I see a lawyer do something, you know, I read a lot of other people's depot transcripts or, you know, hear them cross-examine in a clinic and I, and I see them do something that I had never thought to do. And then I'm like, okay, I'm doing that in my next trial. So I love teaching because I really do think it makes me better. Absolutely. So one of the cool things, um, if you take their class, Ben, is that they have these improv actors who play the witnesses. And they are unbelievably talented, by the way. Um, but but what Patricia does and what Roger does is they ask us, you know, a little bit about ourselves <laughs> and some of what at least we perceive as our strengths, our weaknesses, our concerns um, in being effective advocates. And then they inject that information into these improv actors. And then as you're asking a question on us on the identical fact pattern, the witness 
plays a totally different personality depending on who's uh, examining them. It's a challenge. It's an absolute challenge. And it goes right to the core of sort of what your own personal self-reflection concerns are and kind of gets you to start working on it. it. It's so intriguing. But how do you go through that exercise, Patricia? And then how do you decide like how you're going to screw with my mind? (laughs) Um, And I'm laughing because it's one of my favorite parts of the clinic. I just, I I love um, challenging people. Um, So yeah, first we start off by doing just a really, you know, benign questionnaire, um, you know, that kind of asks you to, we ask you to tell us, you know, a really great courtroom experience um, or a really bad courtroom experience. And that, that gives me insight into the lawyer. Um, And then I call everybody in advance and I talk to them about their practice. I ask them, you know, those questions of, you know, have you ever taken a depot and wish you had a do over? Tell me about that depot. What was it about that witness, that personality that you, you know, felt like you didn't maximize your facts and you wish you could go back and do it again? And I ask those kinds of questions just to pull it out of people. Um, and, you know, a lot of times people don't realize what, why I'm doing it or what I'm doing. Then I start to synthesize all that information based on the problems that were chosen. Um, and just for everybody's background, we have about 11 different uh fact patterns. And when you go through the clinic, you get to pick you know, a, a certain number of those, those fact patterns. And so then once I see what you've picked, then I can take the, the intel that I've got on you and what you need to work on, what, what scares you, what, what causes you anxiety. Um, and I can work with the actors to push those buttons and to push your boundaries. Because the beautiful thing about the clinic, and we say this to everybody, challenge yourself. No one's losing money. No one's going to jail and no one's losing a kid at the end of your cross because it's, it's not a real case. So we, we work with the actors to really challenge you. Um, and it's fun. It's fun to watch. (laughs) An interesting, um, description because when I think back in my own career on moments where things have, there've been plenty of moments that have gone well, but where things have not gone well, those moments really stand out. I can remember some specific moments. Like one time I was at the infectious disease department. It was like, I think it was the Brigham and Women's Hospital in in Boston. I was taking a deposition and something went wrong. I, I must've made a major mistake or misread something. And the witness was just eating my lunch. And I, I, I think I had a panic attack. I was sweating profusely. I felt I couldn't breathe. I felt sick. Then I realized I was in the infectious disease department in a hospital and I was like, (laughs) oh my God. And to this day, I remember that moment, how horrible it was. And when I left thinking, gosh, I don't ever want that to happen again. Of course, the other lawyer who I knew well and did many cases with looked at me like, you know, are you okay? Do I need to get you help? That kind of thing. Because there can be moments in cross where things go terribly wrong, right? Of course. Absolutely. What is your what is your teaching to lawyers on how to recover when uh your cross goes south on you like like that one did for me? Um, so first and foremost, I tell all lawyers we need to stop being so hard on ourselves. 
Um, I have a lot of lawyers that tell me how horrible something went. And I and and then I read the transcript and I have a very different view of it. I think inherently a lot of us are we, we just hold ourselves to a standard that's not realistic. Um, so that's my first piece of advice to, to lawyers is don't be too hard on yourself. There's no perfect cross-examination. It doesn't exist. You know, I work with Roger Dodd, who who wrote the book. I've seen him cross. I can guarantee you I've never seen him do a perfect cross. Witnesses score points against him too. So we all need to relax a little bit. Secondly, um, I'm a big believer in post-morteming your, your, your losses or your bad depots. Spend more time, you know, after you've had a drink and like calm down a little bit, of course, but then spend more time looking at and trying to figure out where it went wrong, where you got off the rails. Um, I think we learn a lot from those moments. Um, and, you know, teach yourself. Think about when you look at it, well, where did it go wrong? And what could I have done differently? That's the important piece. What could I have done differently? Because that's how we learn. That's how we, you know, do it differently the next time. You have, you've got to plan those moments. Um, you've got to strive to figure it out. Um, and, and then last but not least, when you're actually in the moment and it's going south, um, think about fast forwarding to one of your strong impeachment chapters to get that witness back under control. How are you um, so chill? You go, chill. you go, yeah. I mean, it's so awesome to listen to you, and just the sort of your cadence uh, implies, at least to me, that you have total control over your emotions and it seems like you're just uh, the most easygoing person on on the regular. Am I just totally wrong? Uh, well, I definitely don't think I'm the most easygoing person. Um, I, well, right now, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying talking to you guys. So yeah, I'm going to seem a lot more chill um, in, in the courtroom or in depositions. I, I think we all have a courtroom self that's, maybe sometimes different from our personalities. Um, for whatever reason, my personality in a courtroom tends to be softer. Um, so, you know, I have my moments, but part of it is also for me, you know, I sound like an eight-year-old girl. I've got this like tiny little voice. So um, I can't pull off those more intense crosses, like the I can't pull off that aggressive tone that other lawyers can pull off. I wish I could. I wish I could weave that in, but I don't have that gear. Just as an aside, we had a guest, I think she might have been on the second or third episode, who does mostly criminal defense, but she talked about uh, voice issues and she uh, recommended a voice coach. She said she took voice lessons, basically singing, but that helped her develop a different voice in the courtroom. Um, I have not followed through and done my operatic training yet, but I just thought that was an interesting idea. It, it is a very interesting idea. And I actually did a little bit of voice lessons at one point to work on my projection. Um, but, you know, we all, we all have to use what we got, right? And I got this voice. So I've just kind of transitioned a little bit more to figure out how to use it to my advantage. Um, you know, I do this thing that drives Roger crazy because he can't do it. I call it little girl lost. 
um, during crosses where, you know, a witness will give me an answer and I know I have them. And rather than going aggressive, I look at them and I go, let me understand this a little bit more. Let me break it down. And then I start to break it down. And Roger's at council table going, oh, no, this witness is in trouble. Um, So, you know, I, I guess I've just I abandoned the voice lessons and just started to figure out how to use it for my own advantage. And I think that actually a little off topic, but I think it applies to all of us, right? Like I can't be Rahul. I can't be Ben. I can't be Roger. I can only be the best version of myself. And I have a lot of, you know, I feel like a lot of lawyers kind of talk themselves out of being trial lawyers because they don't think they fit that mold. Every single one of us, no matter what your strengths are, what your weaknesses, your age, your height, your appearance, it's all about figuring out who you are and how to be your best self in the courtroom. And it is possible. I mean, there's no magic there. I'm not a great orator. I mean, you can tell I, you know, I'm just, it, it's not natural for me. Um, it's just about figuring out how to use your own self and your own, you know, strengths. Couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, and, at the law school that I teach at Loyola, that's exactly what I teach to try to inspire the students that there's no uh, no cookie cutter mold or voice uh, level or aggression level or anything that that uh, is needed. But what has been fun about this podcast too, and I think a, a theme that has been coming through um, all of the guest speakers, uh, Ben, I don't know if you'd agree, but it's the concept of authenticity. And really, just being what you said, Patricia, being yourself and uh, and being proud of who you are in in communicating in the courtroom and to people, and how important that is in in being an effective advocate. Absolutely, I think jurors they sense they almost like sniff it out if you're if you're faking if you're not being authentic to who you are or if you don't believe in your case any anything like that. It's like they they feel it they sense it since since you teach so much on on the subject of cross uh i'm assuming you you have great insight into direct and preparing your own witnesses to deal with the other side's cross and on that subject of authenticity it just made me uh think about how when i used to prepare my experts, for instance, medical experts in a medical malpractice case, we would spend a lot of time talking about their impressive credentials. Maybe the they had an extra year in their fellowship compared to the defense expert, or they were a full professor and the other uh, was only associate or whatever. But what I realized later is that juries don't care about any of that stuff. What they really want is just to connect with the person on a human level and what that means is ultimately understanding that that person actually really believes what they're saying. They're not just saying it because you're paying them to be there. And of course, when they're crossed, the other side's going to try to d- deflate that, right? And given your approach to cross and how much you teach on that subject, what are, what is the advice you have for people that are preparing their own uh, witnesses to withstand cross? Yeah, so I think it's a really uh it's a hard question, right? Because every every one of our clients is different, has such different personalities. Um what I always try to do is uh kind of what you and Rahul just suggested, make sure that the witness, the the party is being 
true to themselves. So I don't ever coach a witness to have a, a different, you know, to change the way they answer questions or the way that they they act as a human, because I think it comes across badly. What I work on with them is really listening to the question. Um, a lot of, especially with our own experts, a lot of times they they are four or five questions ahead and not really answering the question that was asked. And it, that can get them into trouble. So my biggest thing is, uh, listen to the question and take a breath. There is no harm in a pause and make sure that you're answering that question. Um, I also work with my clients and experts in general, especially if I have any intel on the opposing counsel on how to just, just to prepare them for what they're, they're up for. You know, if I know that there's a really aggressive lawyer who's going to, you know, have that more aggressive tone, maybe, you know, use the the space in the courtroom to get into their personal space and and feel imposing. I I work with them to be ready for it so that it it doesn't make them as angry or as upset, and they can control their emotions more. Um, I think emotions, emotional answers, can be some of the most harmful answers. Um, and I don't mean to say like if, you know, if you have a, someone who's been injured, that they shouldn't have emotion over how this has changed their life. It, I guess I mean more reactionary emotions, reacting to, you know, what they perceive as disrespect or a slight from an opposing counsel. One way I've seen people defeat that one question, one one fact per question approach is they train their experts to say something like, uh, yes, but may I explain or something similar? And that puts you in a very difficult position as the questioner, because if you say, no, you may not, uh, you'll have your chance later uh, during your own lawyer's questioning. It lo- makes you look like you're worried about the answer and you don't want them to explain. On the other hand, if you say yes and let them explain, they hang you with that answer and can go on forever and, and they completely disrupt your flow. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think you deal with it in a few different ways, right? Um, number one, uh, sometimes if you say something like, oh, well, we're going to get to that, the jury forgets that you didn't let them explain right then and there. They think that you're going to come back to it and they don't ever know that you didn't come back to it. So I think that's a really helpful way of doing, of dealing with it. Um, and then, you know, you can't always do that. You can't, you know, say that a million times and across. So the other thing I, you know, I recommend every now and again, letting them explain and remembering that it's the extra offered information that presents the opportunities. Listen, 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 write down phrases from their answer and figure out how to, how to use their own words to tie to your narrative. If, if after the answer, you don't know right then and there, I recommend what I call putting a pin in it. So I'll say, let me make sure I got this. You said this phrase. Yes. Lock that in. The jury now hears it again. Do it with each part of that long answer that you, your gut tells you you might be able to use. And then 
hopefully you have a second chair whose mind is working, you know, at a different level than yours because you're the one on your feet. And uh, that's my cue to my second chair if I have one of figure out how I can use this later and I'll come back to it later. But if you don't put the pin in it right then and there, then the jury's less likely to remember it. And more importantly, what I find is witnesses then change their word selection because they don't like to have their words used back against them. And, and the reality is sometimes you never come back to it because you never figure out how you can use it. And yeah, they scored a point or two. Um, you know, that's, that's just life. Um, it's just really important, I think, for all of us when they do score points, don't get so, don't feel so defeated that you truncate your cross. You know, I see lawyers that you, they have a really important point to make and they, they get frustrated and impatient with the fight and they just move on and they never stay on it to get to the point. I, I encourage everybody to remember, even if it's painful, even if it takes too long in your mind and you're getting impatient with yourself, your job is to, to get whatever fact admitted that you, you started out to get. So even if you've got to approach it from all these different ways and it's an ugly cross, um, stay on it. Be that like pit bull that, you know, with a, their jaw locked until you get what you need to get. Just one more. I have one, one more question. Sorry. Uh, this is so great. I'm learning so much and, uh, and ideas keep coming, but so, what what is your strategy for deposition cross versus trial cross? Because what you just mentioned, you know, they see it coming uh, if you go back and retread it. But that actually is what happens when you do a, a fantastic job crossing their witness at the deposition. Then you got to see them again at trial. In our state, when we do med mal cases, we have to cross them in deposition. Then we cross them at what they call a panel hearing, which is a pre litigation hearing, and then trial. So by the time we try the case. Sometimes they've seen us. This is the third go round. So all that great stuff you got the first time when they weren't ready for it, now they're prepared for it. So how do you deal with that kind of uh, thing? So I actually prepare for my depots, especially the really, really important ones, as though they're the trial. Um, I don't hold things back, and, and the reason I don't, and, and yeah, you know, the witness then gets to testify at trial. As long as I've locked in their what they're you know, what they're saying and locked in their version and the facts at deposition, all they can do is come up with a new version. I'm okay with a new version. I can impeach a new version. Um, but, but it takes a lot of time to really lock in the admissions and the story at deposition. So I prepare that, that cross and prepare for those depots like the trial. And I, I try to be very patient and I'll, I'll admit my depots take longer than a lot of lawyers do. Um, and I get a lot of, you know, complaints from opposing counsel, like, are you almost done? And I, and I just say, nope, I'm not, not nearly done. <laughs> um, but I really just try to be as detailed and lock them in. Cause if you've locked them in, you're, you're far better set up for an impeachment. But yeah, they're going to change their story or they're going to change their perspective or try to get away from, from you know, word choice if we're really effective. Um, 
but at least you've you've done a good job and you can impeach them. Um, the other thing I do recommend for those that aren't, uh, you know, solo practitioners, um, think about who in your firm is the best person to do the cross at trial and have somebody else do the depot. Because when you take a deposition, just like you're getting intel on the witness, they're getting intel on you as a lawyer, how you ask questions, how you approach things. So if you mix it up, you make them more anxious. And, you know, it sounds mean when I say this, but I want the opposing witnesses to be anxious. I want them to be nervous. So the more we can do to facilitate that and increase it in them, the better. That's interesting because that's been my approach recently. Uh, I don't take most of the depositions. I don't want them to see me until we get into the hearing or into the trial. And it works pretty well because um, you also, the other lawyer is going to have a slightly different angle on it. They're going to ask questions that you might not have thought of. So in a sense, you get two bites at at the apple instead of just one brain in it. Uh, But that's been pretty... That works pretty well. Do you do that, Raul, or you take all your depots? Just depends on the case, um, and, and just hearing it, I, I, my my gut reaction was to think exactly the opposite. So it's so interesting. It's just I, I get excited in, and I'd like to know. I would like the other side to know what they're what they're coming into, and hopefully still be nervous. <laughs> but um, but. Uh, the flip side makes total sense in sort of keeping them off kilter by by having different people engage with them. I'm going to start trying that. Let us know how it goes. Well, Patricia, I, I could talk to you all, uh, all day and all night. So I really appreciate it. We really appreciate you uh, joining us on the podcast. If listeners uh, want to reach out to you, how would they get a hold of you? Oh, easy. Um, I, my email is probably the easiest way of getting a hold of me. It is Patricia, so P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A at Kundig Law, which is K-U-E-N-D-I-G-L-A-W dot com. Um, and please, I, I, I love this stuff. I, I, I'm a big I'm a big dork, honestly. <laughs> um, and so I love nothing more than bouncing ideas around with somebody. Um, and, you know, if you reach out to me and want you know, to bounce some ideas off me, just be prepared. I'm then going to do the exact same thing to you. I may take you up on that. Please do. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you both so much. I've really enjoyed it. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E dot net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.